Okay, so welcome to this week's parasha class, our Zoom Torah class. So this week we have to cover two topics because we have to discuss we have to discuss the weekly Torah portion, which is Bamidbar, and this Sunday night, Monday, Monday night, Tuesday is the holiday of Shavuot. So we need to talk about that as well. So let's first start with the Torah portion. The Torah portion is called Bamidbar. In English, they call it numbers, this book. But the word Bamidbar does not mean numbers. It means in the desert. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Now, why is it called numbers? Simply because it's the counting. However, interesting that... In the Jewish tradition, it's called in the desert. The entire book is called in the desert. And the first Torah portion of this book is called in the desert. And that's going to be a major topic tonight. But let's talk about what happens here. So number one, the Jewish people are counted. And they're counted only the males from the age of 20 and up. And the simple reason for this is, why are we counting only the males from the age of 20 and up? because it was the norm to count the population of a country in order to know its power. And its power is defined by its army. And the army is the males from the age of 20 and up. So it was in those days. Now, interesting that last week, we read a Torah portion that had a lot of very harsh rebuke and if you won't follow in my ways, and if this and that, and it goes on and on and on, seven times seven. So there are those that say that that is why we never have the holiday of Shavuot right after last week's Shabbat, but rather we will always have a portion in between, and that portion will always be Bamidbar. So the simple meaning of that explanation is that there's no specific connection between the portion Bamidbar in the holiday of Shavuot. Rather, it's just to make a separation between the harsh verses of retribution and the holiday of Shavuot. However, obviously that that will not suffice because obviously everything is exact. And therefore it is exact that not only are we reading a Torah portion before Shavuot to separate it from the retribution, but that that Torah portion is the Torah portion of Bamidbar. So what is that all about? Now, the simple explanation that I heard from the Rebbe of blessed memory is that Bamidbar is all about Hashem counting the Jewish people. And Rashi immediately asks, why are we counting them again? We just counted them. And here we see, it says that on the, uh, it says the exact date of the first day of the second month of the second year when they came out of Egypt. So we're talking about a year and a month after they left Egypt. So why were they being counted again? And Rashi says that the reason of being counted again is chiboson. It's because they're so precious to Hashem. And therefore, Hashem is always counting them the way a person would continuously count his precious gems. Okay, but why? What does it have to do with accounting for Hashem? What is the connection between the fact that we are so precious to him 
to him consistently counting us? And the answer is an interesting law. There is laws in the Code of Jewish Law. It's one of the sections that I had to learn and get tested on in order to get my ordination. And it's called mixtures. And it has to do with all the laws of mixtures. Now, mixtures in the Torah, the one that most of us know most about is obviously the mixtures in the kitchen. Milk and meat, kosher and non-kosher, rabbi. I, I had a soup pot, which is meat. And, and, and by mistake, there was a, a milk, a oatmeal made in it. Is it kosher? Is the food kosher? Is the pot kosher? Is the ladle that I stirred it with kosher? And then sometimes you have another issue. Rabbi, I, I, I always buy this, this package and it always has a beautiful kosher symbol on it. And all of a sudden now there's no kosher symbol on it. And then obviously, you know, something they changed in the plant, it's not kosher. And I cooked it in my pot, I heated it in my microwave, I had it on my glass dish, and then and, and I used my metal fork and spoon. So Rabbi, what's the law? So all these questions have to do with mixture, the mixture of non-kosher into our utensils, or the mixture of kosher milk into a kosher meat utensil or vice versa. However, you should know that there's other laws of mixtures. For example, um, we are not allowed to eat any blood. So therefore, there's actually a custom that you never cook less than three eggs together. Even though you only wanna have two soft boiled eggs or two hard boiled eggs, you do three. Why? Because there's a certain mixture called chad betre, one out of three, one and another two. And what happens here is, what is the reason for that law is because what happens if when we open up the egg, we'll find that there's a blood drop there. A lot of times in eggs, especially the ones that are free range, fertilized brown eggs, um, you know, those are much more natural, um, you know, and, and therefore sometimes you'll find some blood drops in it. And then you have to throw away the egg and everything. But the, re but the fact that the egg, the hard eggshell has has pores, as you can see when you watch it cook, bubbles come, which means that anything's in the egg passes out of the egg. So now that blood was cooking and boiling hot water, it transferred into the walls of the pot. We have another mixture there. And then in the times of the Holy Temple, there's a whole different set of mixtures. And even in Israel today, that applies. What happens with the fruit, with the fruits, the produce that has the laws of tithing and the laws of, of Terumah? What happens with the food of the sabbatical year? All of those. What happens in the olden days when you dedicate, you know, you said that this animal I'm going to bring as a sacrifice, and then this gets mixed into a bunch of other animals. So you have so many different cases that has to do with mixtures. So there's a whole bunch of laws of mixtures. Now, obviously, what I was studying in my rabbinical ordination was specifically the, the, the laws as they apply to kosher. Today, um, you know, we don't, unfortunately, not yet, feeling our days, but today we don't have all those other issues of the purity, the impurity, the sanctity, the mundane, the mixtures of all of that. Now, in these laws of mixtures, it tells you the rules. The rule of kosher has to do with flavor. That's why it's one in 60. And then it starts giving you exceptions to the rule. Now, for example, there is one exception 
that if you have an entire creature, so if, guys, just gonna pick the first one that comes to my head. If a cockroach falls into your soup, and there's definitely 60 times amount of soup than there is in the cockroach. There's a different issue here because an entire cockroach is an entire creation and that cannot become nullified. So therefore, it's called barrier. If you have an entire creation, it in itself has a certain value of importance that it doesn't become nullified to a larger amount. Now, let's get to why I'm telling you all of this. Because there's another law of an exception that regardless of how much the ratio makes it a minority of a minority of a minority, it will never lose its identity to the greater mass. And that is dovar shebeminyin in a bottle. That which is counted is not nullified. For example, you have certain things that you buy in bulk, certain things that you buy in weight. However, that which is expensive and important, you don't buy in mass bulk weight, you buy it by the item. Until this very day, you'll see that. There are certain produce that it's 99, $1.99 a pound, and then there are certain things that are considered more valuable. And you'll see the pricing doesn't work by pound or by three, four, one, or it works by each, each one. You're buying it one, two, three, four, and you pay per number. Now, the law is dovish minion in a bottle, something that is dealt with, it's sold and it's bought by number, does not lose its identity because is a that which is counted is considered important. Now, all the laws of nullification will not affect mixtures, nullification will not affect that which carries its own weight, pun intended, in in preciousness, in importance. Now that we know that in a bottle, that which is counted is not nullified because the very counting makes it of importance. Now we'll understand why we always read the Torah portion of Bamidbar before the holiday of Shavuot. And why is that? Because the verse refers to us as one lamb among 70 wolves. You look at our population as a Jewish people in the face of the human race. We are a minority of a minority of a minority. And seemingly we should have lost our own identity in the smelting pot of the human race. And for some reason for the Jewish people that has never happened. Other nations have lost their identity in the greater whole, while the Jewish people have always remained an identity of their own, pointed at and identified as Jew. Now, when God's telling us at Mount Sinai that he's going to make us a nation, the words he used when he took us out of Egypt was, 
to take a nation from amongst nations. Egypt wasn't complete. The redemption of Egypt, the exodus of Egypt was not complete until we reached Mount Sinai because at the burning bush, which was on Mount Sinai, God told Moses, you are to take them out of Egypt in order that they serve me at this mountain. So therefore we know that the completion of the exit of, of Egypt is when they stood at the mountain and they said, we will do and we will hear. So therefore the whole process of Matan Torah, the whole process in which the Jewish people became converted, that's the language that's used, a conversion, a mass conversion that took place where we became a nation from among nations would immediately make it applicable the laws of mixtures. And the laws of mixtures was not in our favor. It would be impossible for us to hold on to our identity, even according to Jewish law, by the ratio of mixture our numbers in the numbers of all the other nations. Hence, before God brings us to Mount Sinai in the way we read the Torah portions now, God is counting us to tell us that I have empowered each and every one of you that you should never get lost in the ratio of the mixture of the human race. Hence, it's so important that every single one of us was counted. Hence, we now understand the deeper meaning of when Rashi says, because we are so cherished by him, does he count us? And now we understand the deeper meaning, which works in both ways. Number one, by being cherished, he gives us the power of a number which means that we're no more ever to be um, it lost in the mixture, in the ratio, in being such a minority. And on the other hand, it's the other way around. Because we are a number, we're so precious to him. So it works both ways. But the outcome of both of these ways are that we no more stand in the fear, the halachic, the Jewish law, the legal fear of losing our identity according to the laws of mixture and ratios. So now we understand a bigger picture of why we're reading this Torah portion, which leads us to the question even deeper than why in the Jewish tradition is this called Bamidbar in the desert rather than being called numbers when the primary focus here is that we are being counted each an individual number. Okay. I also want to point out one other thing, an important insight to what's taking place here. There is a paradox when we count by number. And what is that paradox? The paradox is that on one hand, to have numbers, there must be separation. If you have one big glob, one big mass, then there's no numbers because everything is part of this one big collective mass. So on the one hand, numbers depends upon separation. One, number one is not number two, number two is not number three, right? And that's how we make a quorum a minion, because we have 10. But if the 10 weren't 10 individuals, 
then we wouldn't have a minion. We wouldn't have the number 10. So on one hand, in order to be counted, we need to point out that everyone is separate and therefore everyone has their own number. Yet on the other hand, what's amazing is the paradox is that when counting, Moses is not more than one and the simplest of the simplest, a sinner, whoever he or she may be, is not counted less than one. So that's a beautiful paradox in which I am I and you are you. And yet, in its most essential level, regardless of what you do and regardless of what I do, regardless of what talents and gifts you have, and regardless, regardless of what talents and gifts I have, we are both not more and not less than one each. So it's a really beautiful paradox when you think about it. What makes us a complete nation is that we have all these different individuals. What makes us a unified nation is that each one of these, these individuals will never be counted for more than or less than one which tells us that the number is about the beingness and not about the doingness. Okay, with all that is said, each one of the, each one of the um, tribes were counted. Then after that, well, after counting the tribes, Hashem lets Moses know, do not count the tribe of Levi together with the other tribes. So I've shared with you that whenever we have the number 12, 12 tribes, there's always two ways of counting the tribes of Israel. One is by counting the 12 sons of Jacob. If you count the 12 sons of Jacob, then the third son of Jacob was Levi, which means the Levi's and the Kohanim, which are within the tribe of Levi, are one of the 12 tribes. However, there are times when we don't count the Levi's. For example, we have to divide the land of Israel into 12, 12 portions for 12 tribes, but we're clearly told that the tribe of Levi did not get a portion in the land of Israel. So how do you have 12 then? And the answer is that you will recall that Jacob blesses Joseph before he passes away. He blesses Joseph's two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he says that your two sons, the older one, Menashe, and the younger one, Ephraim, shall be unto me as my sons. And what does that mean? What Jacob was saying was that whenever Levi will not be counted as one of the 12 tribes, we're going to remove you, Joseph, and in your place, we're going to put your two sons. Hence, we'll have 12 without Levi. So Levi is not counted as one of the 12 tribes here and they're not counted in the tally of the Jewish nation. Rather, they are counted separately. Now, why is that so? So Rashi tells us, it is worthy that the special troops of the king be counted alone. Now, therefore, because the tribe of Levi was going to serve in the holy temple, and they were going to be dedicated to that service. Hence, they are called Legiono Shalmelech, the special guard of the king. So they were counted separately. Another difference is that they were not counted 
like all the other Jewish people, which was from the age of 20, but rather they are counted from the age of 30 days old. Now I wanna point out why were they counted from the age of 30 days? The age of 20 is a specific marker. It marks the adulthood. That's why they go to the army then. What does 30 days mark? It doesn't really mark anything. And the answer has to do with the law that a baby that's born in the seventh month of his gestation and a baby that is born in the ninth month of its gestation will survive. I mean, obviously under normal circumstances. However, the baby that is born in the eighth month will not survive because if it's born in the eighth month, that means that it was really a nine month baby and it did not fully develop enough to survive. Hence, whenever we talk about the laws concerning a human being, we don't consider them a definite living human being until after the 30 days old. That is why until this very day, when we do the Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn son to anyone who's not from the tribe of Levi, the law is that you do it only after it has lived complete 30 days. So that's the reason for the number 30. However, in its own right, they would have been counted right from birth. So I want you to know why they're being counted for 30 days. Not because they shouldn't be counted from birth, only that we need to know that this is a surviving, living human being. Another thing is that the tribes of all the, of all the, the 12 tribes, we never count the separation of each family of the tribe. But when it comes to the tribe of Levi, we count the tribe by three different families. The three sons of Levi was Gershon, Kahat, and Merari. Okay. When we talk about the counting, then something else happens. All of a sudden, God tells us how we're supposed to camp. And what does it mean how we're supposed to camp? We camp by having three circles. We have the inner circle, the middle circle, and the outer circle. The inner circle is called the camp of the divine presence. And what that consists of is the courtyard and the actual tent of the tabernacle. The middle circle is the tribe of Levi. There were three families on three sides. Then there was Moses, Aaron, and his sons, which made up the Kohanim on the fourth side. And then there's the outer circle, which had three tribes on each side. Hence, you had the 12 tribes. Now, in the heaven, in the teachings, the mystical teachings, it tells us that why did they set up themselves this way? Because when God descended upon Mount Sinai to give us the Torah, the Jewish people were able were actually able to see the entourage of all the angels. And the angels divide in four primary groups. We know the angel Michael, Gabriel, we know Raphael. There's the primary groups. And under each one of these groups, there are under each one of these archangels, there is different troops. And we're actually taught that because 
God created the human being as the centerpiece. So it's not just that we reflect what is above, but actually above was made in accordance to what we would be. Hence, we're taught that the numbers of the troops of the angels matched specifically the troops of the Jewish people in their tribes. And the way we set ourselves up down here in the desert was an exact reflection of how the angels were situated around the throne of glory. Hence, you will remember that in our high holiday prayers on Yom Kippur, we actually talk about which side Michael is on, the angel Michael, the angel Gabriel, the angel Raphael. We talk about each one of them. Okay, so we have those three troops and how they were situated. And on each side, there was the three tribes. There was the head tribe. And under him or attached to him were the two other tribes. The head tribe was the head flag of that side. So you had camps of three tribes in which there was a primary tribe and attached to him with the two other tribes. Then after that, we speak about finally counting the, the Levites. And the Levites are counted, as I told you, from the three families. Each one of these three families are counted and then we have their exact numbers. And then we're told something very interesting. Originally, we're taught that the firstborns were going to serve in the holy temple. Now, why were the firstborns going to serve in the holy temple? Because of the 10th plague. By the 10th plague of Egypt, by God saving the Jewish firstborns while he smote the Egyptian firstborn, the outcome was that the firstborns belonged to God. Hence, they were the ones that were actually going to serve in the holy temple. However, because they participated in the golden calf and the only male Jews, none of the females participated in the golden calf of any tribe, but the only male that did not participate in the golden calf as a whole tribe was a tribe of Levi. And hence, they had to take the place of the firstborns. So God tells them, now that you counted the Levi's, I want you to count the firstborns so that there can be a switch. You actually have one firstborn replaced by one Levi. And this way, the firstborn can go back to his regular life while the Levi will take his place in the temple. Now, the firstborns of 12 tribes will outnumber the tribe of Levi. Hence, that's where the Pidina Ben was started. God said, Moses, what Moses did was he put into the, into the big, a big urn or whatever it was, he put in the words, um, Levi and, and blank. And what happens is that if the firstborn picked out a parchment that said Levi, then he didn't have to redeem himself because a Levi took his place. But those that picked out the blank ones, they had to redeem themselves because they didn't have a Levi to take their place. And the way they redeemed themselves was the way we do it till this very day was with five silver coins, five slain, which is a certain weight of silver. Okay. And then after that, 
we talk about how even though the Kohanim were the ones that served in the temple, the Levites had their specific jobs. Now, the job that we're going to talk about here, not the jobs that they actually did when the temple was standing, but the job that they did in carrying the temple, disassembling it, carrying it, and reassembling it as the Jewish people would travel through the desert. And that divided again into the three families. And also it was the Levites who had the specific job to make sure that no one else enters into the temple by warning them, you can't pass this line if you're impure. So, and, or if even if you're pure, this line you can't pass either because it's only for those who are doing the service in there, so forth and so on. Okay, so now we pretty much have the story of the Torah portion of Bamidbar. Now let's talk about briefly the holiday of Shavuot. The holiday of Shavuot actually has two completely separate concepts simultaneously going on. The holiday of Shavuot is an agricultural holiday. The word Shavuot actually means weeks. And the reason is because Passover is in spring when the new crop of wheat would begin and they would mark it. And for the next seven days, they would act seven weeks, they would count. And then at the end of the seven weeks, that means on day number 50, they would bring special um, sacrifice with two loaves of bread from the new crop. And that was the holiday of the harvest of the new crop. And to commemorate this till this very day, that's one of the reasons that we adorn the shul with not only flowers, but also fruits, because it's the Chaga Bikurim, it's the holiday of the new fruits. Okay, now that is one concept which had every year they would have to do it in the Holy Temple. However, there's another concept of the holiday of Shavuot, which is what most of us are taught primarily when we're children, and that is Zman Matan Toratenu. It is the time when God gave us the Torah. So the Jewish people left Egypt, and 50 days later was when God descended upon Mount Sinai and gave us the Torah. And from this holiday's perspective, the reason why we have flowers, specifically flowers, not the fruits, but the reason why we have flowers adorning the shul is because we are taught that God adorned Mount Sinai with flowers for the occasion of when he gave the Torah. Now, there is a lot to be discussed about the giving of the Torah. And I'm going to just share with you quickly one I don't want to not say anything about it, but my primary focus is about the desert. So I want to just share with you an interesting teaching. All 613 commandments are hidden and can be extrapolated from the 10 commandments. So when God gave us the 10 commandments, he actually gave us the entire Torah of 613 commandments. More than that, the entire 613 commandments as they are divided into the 248 thou shall and the 365 thou shall not, the prohibitions, 
all of those are hidden within the first two commandments. The first two commandments are which we heard directly from God. I am God, your God. You shall not have any idol worship. You shall not worship any other gods. Now, in the first commandment, I am God, your God, is hidden the entire 248 positive commandments, thou shall do. And in the second commandment, thou shall not serve any other gods, is hidden and can be extrapolated all the 365 prohibitions. Even greater than that, the first two commandments are hidden in the first commandment. I am God, your God. So even that thou shall not serve any other gods is already hidden in the I am God, your God. Even more than that, the entire first commandment, I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt, is hidden in the first word, I, Anochi. Even more than that, the entire word Anochi is hidden in the first letter Aleph. Even more than that, the first letter Aleph is hidden in that little crown that we put in the, in the, in the thorn, actually it's called, the koitsoi. The top letter, the Aleph is made up of three letters, a top yud, a bottom yud, and a vav in middle. So it's all within the top yud, but the top yud also has like a little thorn slash crown that goes up. If you look in the way it's written in the Torah, not the way it's printed, and everything is hidden in that top crown. Now, what does this mean to us? Again, I'm going to be brief here. What it means to us is that ultimately the 10 commandments are a reflection of the 10 um, emanations the three intellects, the seven emotions, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and all the seven emotions, love, fear, and so forth. Now, on top of that, there is the crown. The crown is made up of two parts. There is the circle that fits the head made to size, and that is called the power of will. And higher than that is the outer circle which in, in Kabbalah, we call that the inner circle because we're going inwards, inwards, inwards. But I just, I'm saying not the part that's made to fit your head, but the, the, the larger size. That represents the infinite circle, which is pleasure, the inner essence and peace of God. Now, what we're now understanding is that every one of these commandments, every word of the Torah is ultimately the oneness of the will of God, even more than that, the oneness of the inner essence, peace and pleasure of God. Hence, we understand that the Torah is not just a book of laws, a book of rules, but rather it is the way that God gave himself to us. There is no way that we can ever grasp God, both intellectually grasp or grasp God. So how do we have a true relationship with God? And the answer is because God placed himself into the Torah. And therefore, when we study Torah, digest Torah, we are actually grasping God, digesting and internalizing God, becoming one with God. Hence, we are taught on the verse, V'yikhuli teruma, you shall take from me teruma. Teruma simply means a donation. However, the mystics explain it in the Zohar that the word teruma is made up of the word Torah, mem, 
the Torah that was given in Mem equals 40 in 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what does it mean? Torah, you shall take me Torah. It should have said, you shall take the Torah. And the deeper meaning is because by taking the Torah, you take me. Hence, we're taught, when you take, you grasp, you digest the Torah, it is me that you are taking, grasping, and digesting. Okay. Now I want to talk about the desert. What is the secret of the desert? Why was the Torah given in the desert? Why wouldn't it be given in Temple Mount, in the Holy Temple? I mean, because ultimately, God has all the following commandments. Everything that he speaks to Moses after the Mount Sinai revelation is all coming from the Ohel Moed. It's all coming from the tent of the testimony, the tabernacle. So why, why the Mount Sinai in the desert? What's the whole scoop of the desert? So there's the most simple explanation that our sages give that God is giving us a strong message. I'm not giving you the Torah in any land, country that anyone can claim rights to. I'm not even going to give it in Israel in which there's different portions with different tribes that anyone should be able to say, aha, God gave it to us in our land, in our portion. Hence, God takes the most ownerless place on earth, which is the desert, and lets us know the desert is ownerless. Hence, whoever wants to, whoever chooses to, acquire the Torah, the Torah is his. No one can say, hey, this is my Torah. You can't have it. Leaning on this interpretation, there's another insight that says, if you want to be able to study, acquire the Torah, you're going to have to leave the comfort zone of civilization and go into the barrenness where you will not be pursuing physical wealth, physical comfort, physical fame, physical power, but rather you're willing to negate all of that and be in the barrenness of a desert. And that way you can receive the Torah. To quote what our sages say in Pirkei Avot, that if you want to acquire Torah, you have to sleep on a bench, eat dark bread, and water, no indulgence, because any type of physical indulgence is a strengthening of the physical sensory, which will become an arrogance that will get in the way of understanding the selfless, infinite knowledge of God. Okay, that's, a, that's one interpretation. However, I want to share with you specific interpretation that comes from the Alter Rebbe, Rav Zaman of Liadi, in his book, Likute Torah, in which he gives mystical insights for every Torah portion. And he says the following, the word Midbar, which means desert, has the exact same letters in the same order of the word Midaber. Now, Midaber means a talker, a speaker. You should know that the human being is called the Midaber. So when we talk about the four categories which makes up, make up all of creation, we have the inanimate, 
We have the plant, we have the animal, and we have the human. The human is not called human in the categories he's called midaber, the talker, the speaker, because only the human being has that level of communication. Okay, so now we know that the word midbar is going to be mystically replaced, translated as the word midaber, the speaker, the talker. Okay, what is this telling us? To understand this, we need to go to the supernal midaber. God, twice, twice in the Torah, we have God defining himself as a midaber in which he gives the primary relationship with us through his being midaber, speaking. Where do you have those two instances? The first instant is in Genesis. How did God create the world? Through being a midaber, a speaker. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters gather and reveal the land. And God said, let the earth give forth produce. Let the earth give forth animals. Let the water give forth fish. Let the water give forth birds. Everything was God said, God said, God said. So much so that the entire process of God creating the world is through the Asara Mamarot, the 10 sayings, the 10 utterances. Okay. The second time we refer to God as the speaker is by Mount Sinai, when God gave us the 10 commandments. Now in Hebrew, the word that's used is not Aseret mitzvot, aseret sivuim, aseret chokim. It doesn't say actually 10 commandments, 10 statutes, 10 laws. It says aseret hadibrot. You recognize the word dibrot from what I just told you, medaber. So dibrot is actually the 10 speech, the 10 sayings. So we have twice that God is revealed to us as a medaber. One in Genesis with the 10 utterances and one in Mount Sinai in the 10 commandments. However, there is a huge difference between the two. And what is the huge difference? In the 10 utterances, the job and purpose was in order to bring the finite out of the infinite, the creation out of the creator, the physical out of the spiritual, and the multiplicity, arrogance, identity, self-identity out of total transparency, oneness, and selflessness of God's being. So now that we know that that was the primary focus of the 10 utterances, we now understand that even greater than the purpose of revelation of divinity to create the world was actually the concealment and contraction of divinity so that the world would be a physical, finite world of identity, ego, arrogance, freedom of choice. So the 10 utterances really is all about contraction and concealment to the point where the process of the 10 utterances was to create the possibility, the potential of evil. Because that is part of creation, part of freedom of choice, part of God's master plan in creating the universe. 
So the 10 utterances was about the concealment of the infinite oneness of God, goodness of divinity, so that there can be the potential of separation and narcissism even and evil. Now let's talk about the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments. The primary purpose of the Ten Commandments is the exact opposite. It is to bring, it is to bring forth the creator within the creation. It is to bring forth the infinite within the finite. It is to bring forth the spiritual within the physical. And it's to bring forth the absolute nullification of the nothingness, quote unquote, within the somethingness. So actually, while the 10 utterances created ex nihilo, something out of nothing, a arrogance out of selflessness and transparency, the 10 commandments is the exact opposite. It is the job of bringing forth the nothingness, the divinity, the selflessness, the oneness out of the arrogance and ego of the somethingness. So you have two levels of midaber, you have two levels of speech by God, and they're exact opposites. Now let's understand why gave, God gave the Torah in the desert. So the desert is the place in which in Deuteronomy, Moses refers to it as the place void of humanity, void of human civilization, the place in which there is deadly scorpions and serpents. It's a place in Kabbalah which represents a not good situation. It's void of divinity, void of growth, void of goodness. Now, God's giving the Ten Commandments into the ultimate contraction of the 10 utterances he's giving us the torah in the desert he's giving us the aseret hadibrot the 10 commandments midaber in the place of the ultimate expression of contraction and concealment of the aseret mamarot the 10 utterances midaber and now we understand what's going on here the purpose of us receiving the Torah is to transform the 10 utterances, the midbar, into the ultimate midaber. God is telling us, go irrigate the desert. Take the place of the barrenness of the 10 utterances and bring forth the lush produce of the fulfillment and the divinity of the 10 commandments, the Torah. And that's the secret of Bamidbar in the desert to take the desert and to have a transformation from the Midaber of the 10 utterances into total transparency for the Midaber of the Aseret Hadibrot. Thank you.